Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I am joined once again today by wonderful guest co-host Kathleen Vanderwill. Welcome, Kathleen. Hi, Pat. It's lovely to be back with you. And I'm so glad you are here because we have a very interesting opera, and I'm going to rely on you for help with this one. Tell us about today's opera. Absolutely. We do have an interesting one. We are going to be listening to Peleus et Melisande by Claude Debussy, Debussy's only opera. Right. He started several, I understand, and worked on a number of them, but this was the only one that was completed and performed in his lifetime. Indeed. And it is a really unique opera. It is not like anything else I have heard or watched or discussed with you. So I'm excited. So this opera premiered in 1902 in Paris by the Opera Comique, which doesn't mean this is a comical opera. I (laughs) promise you it's not comical. (laughs) But the Opera Comique, particularly late in the 19th century, early in the 20th century, it, it was not necessarily a venue for comical operas exclusively, but it would be where you would not have to do the traditional grand opera or you don't need as large a set. They could be scaled down or more experimental. And in some ways, Peleas and Melisande is experimental. It certainly was a new kind of music on the stage. Yes, Debussy had a lot of ideas about opera and about how to change opera and searched, as you mentioned, a long time before he really found the right story and was able to complete this opera. We not only have a lot of beautiful music ahead of us, we are also exploring how opera is going to change as we go into the 20th century. We're leaving behind a lot of that 19th century opera style. Yes, it's interesting. I I feel like uh, we're going to experience it as we go along through the show, but I feel like you get sort of into people's souls more than focus on narrative storytelling. In the spirit of Opera for Everyone, I would like to say I wouldn't recommend this as your very first opera. It's not narrative-driven the way a lot of other operas are. It's, well, to use an expression that Debussy himself didn't like, it's a little more impressionistic. He didn't like being called an impressionist composer. <laughs> and we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about the symbolist movement as we go along. But that was, that was a term that he did embrace. But it's atmospheric, and you get a real feeling of being somewhere. Absolutely. It's funny that he doesn't want to be called an impressionist, but I would say... Comparing this to different styles of art is an easier way to tell whether it's something you would like. If you're somebody who likes Impressionist art, if you like dream sequences, if you like pre-Raphaelite art, this sort of thing is for you. But if you like realism, this is going to be a little bit harder for you to, to swallow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> well, we've discussed the sound and the feel of this extraordinary opera quite a lot. Kathleen, I think now it's time we just dive into the music. (laughs) That's a terrible pun, Pat. (laughs) I'm sorry. It was just too easy. I'll let you explain my bad pun. Well, this opera is all about water. 
water is mentioned a hundred thousand times. It is the place where Melisande is found and is on a fountain. There's a lot of references to ships on the sea. There's water undermining the foundations of a castle. Water is one of our main symbols. So so Pat's terrible pun is, is a perfect setup for one of the main metaphors of this opera, which is water versus land. And there's a lot of those dichotomies that we're going to talk about in a bit. But Pat is right. We have described how this sounds quite a lot. So we should probably let you actually listen to it. opera for everyone and you are listening to Peleas et Melisande by Claude Debussy. We have not yet met Peleas, but the woman we just heard was Melisande. Who was she singing with, Kathleen? She is singing with the first suitor of hers that we meet. His name is Goulot. He is a prince of a fictional kingdom named Allemande. And he's out hunting, gets lost, and has stumbled upon this mysterious woman by a fountain, crying. Water, water. Water, water everywhere. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) So why is she crying? Well, I don't know. Why is she crying? Part of the part of the the charm of this this opera, this story, is that it's full of sketchy mysteryness. She is crying for an unknown reason. He never really knows why she's crying. We never really know, but she is upset and she is looking into 
this fountain of water and there's a golden crown that has fallen into the fountain and she's looking down at this golden crown and crying. Oh. And she doesn't give a lot of information, but we do know that when he comes upon this beautiful woman, the first thing he tries to do is touch her to see if she's okay, comfort her, and she draws back and she says, don't touch me. And that's the first thing we really hear Melisande sing, don't touch me. Oh, yeah. And And you can hear that in the track that we just listened mm -hmm. to, where she's so fast, just fear. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. Mm -hmm. The first thing we get of her character is, is she's crying and she's fearful. And from that, we can infer that some sort of trauma, something has happened to her that she's run away from. And the fact that there's this crown in the water, which Gulo tries to retrieve from her, but she doesn't want it retrieved. She says, don't touch it. Perhaps it is her crown. Perhaps she was married before. She was in a relationship or something. She's run away. But all of that sort of plot details is a little too much for Debussy. It's not It's not about a, a straight, <laughs> this happened and then that happened plot for him. It's all about the metaphor of her weeping by the pool. So that is, that is how we meet two of our main characters. It's interesting because you want this to be this wonderfully romantic scene where this, this strong hunter comes upon the damsel in distress, but it it doesn't really play out in that classic fashion. Right. Well, the very first one that you and I did together over a year ago, Lucia de Lammermoor, has a really similar opening where you have a, a young woman who's rescued by a nobleman and there's instant sparks. It's the meat cute. But this is a little bit weirder. It reminds me a lot. Nothing cute here. Nothing cute. (laughs) (laughs) Just like crying and weirdness. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of La Belle Dame Sans Merci, which is The Beautiful Woman Without Mercy, which is a poem by John Keats from, from earlier in the 19th century that talks about this legend of a knight who comes upon a woman with long hair. She's very beautiful and he falls in love with her and she's very mysterious. And he sort of runs away from the world and spends his life loving her and ends up alone because she leaves him, but he never really knows anything about her. It's the mystery of this woman that attracts him. That is very similar to Gulo. He's attracted to this woman because he doesn't understand her and never and really does. And she's very beautiful. She is very young. She is very beautiful, yes. Her youth, I think, is a huge part of the attraction. Gulo is not a young prince. He has an older father and a much older grandfather who we will meet. His father is, is dying. There's this idea that he's soon perhaps going to succeed and become king. And he's got some gray hairs. So I think her mysteriousness, but also her youth are are the main attractions here. And if he's going to take over the kingdom soon or the principality, we don't even know which. But (laughs) (laughs) it's imaginary. We can say whatever we want. (laughs) If if he's going to take over from his grandfather, then he's going to need a wife. This is true. And we find out later that Gulo was married and his wife died and he actually has a, a son already who we will meet. But, you know, always good to have an heir and a spare. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it's true. Well, she starts out saying, don't touch me, don't touch me. But she doesn't 100% reject him. It's true. She keeps herself aloof and, and does initially say, don't touch me. But once she begins to talk with him, 
she does reveal some things about herself. She reveals her name, for instance. She tells him her name is Melisande. And when he questions her about where she's going and she says she's lost, he says he's lost as well. And her lost, I think, is a little more metaphorical than his literal lost. Mm -hmm. But that is a connection between the two of them. And that softens her to him somewhat. There's a lot in this story about opposites. We talked about this a little already, but this is one of the places where you see Gulo and Melisande have something in common at the very beginning here, that they are both lost. And that ties them together enough that the next time we see them, they are married. Right, and the next time they're even spoken of, mm -hmm. it's to explain that he's gotten married to this young woman, even though his uh, grandfather had other plans in mind for him. <laughs> <laughs> Don't they always? <laughs> well, in the next scene, we're at the castle. Yes, six months have gone by since their meeting. They have kept themselves away, and we don't really know how they've been occupying their time. Once again, plot, not super, super important. But Gulo has sent a letter to his grandfather and his mother, Genevieve, to explain that he has married Melisande. He knows it's against the will of his grandfather, Arkel, the king. And he says, if you are willing to accept us, hang a light in the, in the tower, in the castle. We're coming by ship and we will come to the castle if we see this light in the turret. So they're giving him the opportunity, Arkel, to, to either accept them or not. And we learned about this all in a letter that Gulo has sent to Peleas, who is his brother, who we will be meeting and is clearly a central figure since he's in the title. In the title, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's mystery over mystery and you get a feeling of old time stories with the weeping damsel, with the castle, with the hang a light. It's ancient, going all the way back to Greek mythology. I think yes. of the white flag, black flag, when Theseus is returning home. It's just, it feels like an old story that's vaguely familiar, even though we've just started it and we don't even know what's going on. It's true. And it reminds me a lot of, we have talked about Sir Walter Scott on podcasts before, the Arthurian tales, the medieval knights, the damsels in distress once again women weeping by fountains with really long hair it's it's got a fairy tale <laughs> aspect to it mm -hmm. and that was really popular at the beginning of the 19th century and then there was more of a movement towards realism towards the the middle of the 19th century towards later 19th century as a reaction against romanticism right which scott was was a part of I, this is a, a vastly truncated history of 19th century movements but it's fine um <laughs> <laughs> but now we see this sort of return of fairy tales that kind of more symbolic stories as a reaction against that realism so i, I like to describe that the 19th century and, and probably the 20th century too is, is just a giant game of you have romanticism reacting to realism reacting to romanticism back and forth back and forth and that tension you can see here this is really romantic and uh we will talk a lot more about this but all of these people too are based on on earlier myths too especially melisandre yes well i think it's time to meet peleas yes and this is going to be towards the end of the second scene in the first act and 
Peleas is going to come in, see his mother and his grandfather. The first thing we know about him is that he's crying. His mother tells us he's crying. Yeah, so this is another instance of things that link characters. So we had Gulo and Melisandre are lost, and now we have Melisandre is crying when we meet her, and Peleas is crying when we meet him. That's another thing that links the, the characters together. And there's another letter, and he says, yes, along with the letter that I received from my brother, the one you just told us all about, he's received a letter from an old friend who is ill and dying and wants Peleas to come see him. Interestingly, the grandfather will not agree to this request. And you can see that the grandfather is in charge, just as Golo is afraid that he shouldn't even come home because he's married without permission. Peleas is going to have to bow to his grandfather's wishes and not go see his dying friend. Yes, the specter of death is going to haunt throughout this piece. And this is the first time that we really see that it's even in just on the edges. You know, we have this character we'll never meet, Marcellus, who is dying. But it seems important to Debussy to introduce that, that, that Peleos is instantly connected to death and sorrow the first time that we meet him. So the reason that Arkel just as a note, doesn't want Peleus to go visit his dying friend as he says, well, you have to choose because your father is also dying. So you have to choose between your dying friend or your dying father. And it is not appropriate for you to choose your friend. You have to stay because your father is dying. So he doesn't really get to choose. The choice is made for him. <laughs> right. That's a, It's a little manipulative. <laughs> and we never meet the father either. No. So neither of these characters is ever seen or heard from in this opera. Well, let's, let's meet Peleas and Arkel, and a little bit of Genevieve.
This is Opera for Everyone, and Peleas and Melisande is our opera today by Claude Debussy, his only opera. Well, Kathleen, we, we not only got to meet Peleas and his mother, who does not figure prominently in the opera going forward, but I also played a little bit of that interlude that happens between the second scene and the third scene of the first act. And I did that not only because it's beautiful music, but also because it is a feature of this opera, many interludes. Which is not something that we encounter in a lot of operas, right? Well, they're there oftentimes to allow set changes to mm-hmm. occur. And in fact, when when Debussy was finally able to premiere this opera, which he had written, they needed more time for set changes. So under the gun, he had to extend some of these interludes, not too <laughs> thrilled to have to do that because he liked the work that he had come up with, but he did have to do that. Nevertheless, these interludes are there not purely for set change purposes. They are there because they are part of the atmosphere that's being created, and they also function as transitions very much between one scene and the other, because the the scenes have different moods and different feelings, and the interludes help with that. Yeah, I remember when I was listening to this for the first time, I kept thinking of the, the different interludes that were setting the scene almost as these little tone poems. They really allow you to transition into the mood of the next scene, because you're completely right. Each scene has this very specific mood, and... I know we talked a little bit before we were recording about, we had both watched very minimalist, I would say, Mm -hmm. um, productions of this, where there really weren't that many scenes. There's there's not that much scenery at all, or costume changes or anything like that. And I know Debussy had a really specific idea of what he thought opera should be like. Does his, does this, this factors into kind of his new way of thinking about opera? Right. We talked about the fact that this is the only completed opera. And there were some some starts of other operas that he didn't ever complete and never saw to production because they didn't speak to him the way that this opera, the way that the play that this is based on spoke to him. Mm-hmm. In fact, maybe we should spend a couple of minutes now talking about the librettist. It's hard to say, is Debussy the librettist? Not really, but he is the editor of the libretto which in fact is a play. I ran across a quote from Debussy about the perfect librettist when I was was researching for this, and he said, the perfect librettist is a poet who deals in hints, which I think is, is the perfect way to think about this libretto. It is full of hints and it is very poetic and it is based on a play. There is an existing source, a play by Maurice Metterlink, who it's this a play of the same name. And Metterlink was a key figure in the symbolist movement. And the story hews fairly closely to Metterlink's play. I would say Debussy cut down the plot significantly, as right. as you would expect from what we've been saying. And interestingly, Debussy had, the the play was published before it was premiered, and Debussy had read the play Mm -hmm. and then was eager to see the premiere, which was in 1893 in Paris, and he was sold. I have to have this play. This play is what I've been looking for. When you describe what he's looking for in a librettist, it was there. But it's also interesting because when you read little snatches about this opera, 
some authors will make a major point of saying this is an unusual sort of libretto because no one versified it. No one turned it into poetry. He just took the play, Debussy just took Metterlink's play and deleted lines from it. But it is all Metterlink's words. And I understand that there was some controversy later with Metterlink, too, um, that he was not happy with the the ultimate product. Well, I mean, the scuttlebutt, honestly, the scuttlebutt is that he was really furious because Metterlink wanted his choice of lead soprano to go into the role of Melisande. And she was not the kind of voice that Debussy had in mind. And he kind of strung Metterlink along and let this woman rehearse. I mean, there's a romantic relationship, clearly, keeping her happy. (laughs) But instead, he engaged the services of an Irish soprano, Mary Garden, who was just, I mean, she was also knockout in Mm -hmm. the role of Zalame later on. That's 1905, speaking Mm -hmm. of operas where the where Strauss in this case he took Oscar Wilde's play Mm -hmm. and just deleted some of the dialogue but kept all Oscar Wilde's I mean a German translation of Oscar Wilde's work and he just deleted it so it's similar in that way but this precedes that by three years did you know that while Oscar Wilde was writing Salome he was reading Metterlink's play no. And yes, he was really oh. influenced by Metterlink and, and writers like him at the time, because um, Oscar Wilde came a little bit later. Yes, it was a really small world. <laughs> totally. And you can see these two operas as just shaking up the opera world in mm-hmm. the early 20th century. O2 for Peleas and Melisande and O5 for Zalame. They're like nothing else that anyone had ever experienced. So back to the scandal... Metterlink is so upset that it turns his entire view of Debussy on its head because he had seen a kindred spirit in Debussy, a musical kindred spirit to what he was trying to do with his writing. You know, smart, Debussy got in writing from Metterlink the permission to not only use his work, but make any cuts he needed Mm -hmm. to and have control of casting. So he did have the right to bring in whatever soprano he wanted. Didn't matter. Metterlink was furious. Metterlink smeared him in the press. And so a lot of people thought, oh, well, maybe we should reconsider what we think about Debussy. Well, that didn't last all that long. 20 years later, Metterlink does, in fact see a performance, finally sees a performance of Peleas and Melisande, and he puts it in writing. I was wrong. Debussy was right. This is a magnificent work. (laughs) And Metterlink continues on with a successful career. In fact, he wins the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1911. So two giants, they're bound to butt heads. So it it all worked out. And over a woman, of course. My goodness. Well, I, that's a nice little, um, I, I think I love opera gossip. <laughs> it's always good. There's a, there's a lot of it out there for <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, back to our story. Yes. So Melisande and Goulot have been away this whole time and they are coming home. They have seen the light in the tower and know that they are welcome. And so their ship does dock and Melisande is introduced to the family. So we come in with Melisande is now at the castle and she's actually touring the gardens with Genevieve and Peleus emerges 
and she meets him as well and he hints that he thinks a storm is coming because of course there's our there's our symbolism <laughs> our metaphor <laughs> so true <laughs> the first time he comes and meets her he's like hello there's a giant storm coming this is ominous <laughs> So we're going to listen to Melisande and Peleas' first conversation and get to know their relationship a little bit. just finished act one of the five-act opera Peleas and Melisande by Claude Debussy which premiered in 1902 and 
And Kathleen, we're going to spend a little more time with Peleas and Melisande in the beginning of Act 2, but is there anything we need to know? Anything further about Act 1? So later on, we'll talk a little bit about this, but there's a question throughout of of when we learn that Melisande and Peleas love each other, because spoiler alert, they fall in love. Um, (laughs) We we guessed that from the title. (laughs) And much later on, she will confess that she loved him at first sight. So I did want to mention that we just listened to their first meeting. And there's nothing much in it that would convince you that they had fallen in love with each other. But we do get a moment where Pelias says that he's he's thinking of leaving, that he is thinking Mm. of even taking the ship that she just took to get there. He's going to run away and perhaps see Marcellus or, or just escape his family. And she is upset and she asks him why he would leave and he doesn't really respond but he doesn't leave so there is a moment there (laughs) where if you're trying to pinpoint the moment where she catches feelings as we say i think it's 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 right about there when she doesn't want him to leave and are we meant to think that these two are more comparably matched in terms of age because we know she finds golo to be old Mm mm-hmm yeah, I would say probably. I I am not even sure whether it's ever explicitly stated that Pelias is the younger brother, but I assume he's the younger brother. Just everything that, the way that he acts and the way that he's spoken of, um, he seems to be the younger brother. He's also, I think, more clearly matched to her in temperament than Gulo is. He is crying the first time we see him, once again, just like Melisang. He is somebody who feels deeply and and seems to care a lot about his dying friend. He also is much dreamier. It reminds me of Romeo and Juliet and mm. Paris. So so the Paris, the count, is Juliet's other suitor. And he's very upstanding and, and he's older and he's very practical and Juliet's not into it. But Romeo is the one who moons about the gardens, right. oh, Rosaline, and oh, your hands are pretty, and stuff like that. It's very much that kind of thing, where I think she sees Gulo almost as a father figure, whereas Pelias is is more of a peer. And gets her heart beating a little more. To the extent, I mean, we're imagining that, because she's a very passive she creature is. throughout this entire opera. She's very passive, and she's she's almost cold, I wouldn't say she's deliberately cold, but she feels inaccessible. She feels remote to us. And not that that characters really speak that much about their feelings in this, no matter which character they are, but there's something remote and cool, almost like the sea, perhaps, <laughs> about her. She's connected to that, to, to almost like cold water, in a way. Right. Well, and a, and a modern take on this would have me reflecting back on the things she said right in that very first scene, which makes you think she's undergone trauma. Yeah. And that can make a person withdrawn. Yeah, I think if you want it, if you want to do a, a less dreamy and more literal interpretation, similar to, to the production that I saw, took it very literally and treated her almost as if she were a, a mental patient. A lot of the, the production I saw took place with her on a therapist's couch and Gulo oh. acting as almost as the therapist, really, which uh, was an interesting interpretation because it raised a lot of the same concerns about power dynamics that I think are very much here with Gulo being so much older than she is. 
yeah, I mean, she could very clearly have been escaping from an abusive relationship if we want to take it literally. I, I think metaphorically, if we want to look at it that way, there is a sense here that there's something wrong with her or different about her as a woman, too. And I want to maybe explore that a little bit later, but there's a lot of things that she does that are not typical of a woman of this time period, of a wife. She seems Mm. very uninterested in fulfilling traditional feminine roles. And one of those is to be overtly emotional. True enough. Well, all of this next scene, this first scene of Act 2, we have our two title characters together. How do they spend their time? Well, of course, the, uh, like any good first date, Peleus takes Melisande to a fountain. Aha! She and likes he, water. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it doesn't seem as if he knows that she's got a fountain connection from before. But he brings her to this fountain in the park that's old and dried up and abandoned. And it is known as the Fountain of the Blind, mm. which is a perfect connection because there's a lot in this story about who can see and who can't. So so we know that the old king, Arkel, is at least partially blind. And that's part of the reason this fountain has been abandoned, because it was thought that the waters were able to cure blindness. But clearly that's not working. So mm. we have here water as having healing properties, but something has gone wrong. And instead, it, it's not doing its job. And, and Peleus and Melisande talk about how beautiful it is. And Melisande is sitting by the fountain, and that's when she explains to to Peleus that she has this connection where that's where she met Goulot. So we have this mirror image where first we see Melisande sitting by a fountain with Goulot, her first suitor and later husband. And now we see Peleus and Melisande by a fountain again. And he says this really interesting line that I, I just love to puzzle over it, where he says, there's an extraordinary silence. You could hear the water sleeping. It's kind of beautiful. What an interesting thing to ponder, the sound Mm -hmm. of water sleeping. But she is entranced by the water, and she's bending over to try to touch it. And he's afraid she's going to slip. Mm -hmm. And she's got this long, we haven't really talked about this, but she's meant to have this long Rapunzel-like hair. And her hair is trailing in the water, almost as if she's being pulled in, which is this, this extremely pre raphaelite artistic image. And yes, he's concerned, and he kind of thinks she's being a little foolish, a little childish. Right. And she is. she begins playing with her wedding ring and confessing to Peleas that she's not really attracted to her husband, which is a, a kind of an extraordinary admission to make. And as she plays with this this wedding ring, he's concerned she's going to drop it. She says, oh, no, of course not. And then, of course, she does. (laughs) She drops it into the water. Yes, she's tossing it up and down. Mm -hmm. Don't throw it so high, he says. But she's a child. She doesn't listen. She continues to play. And this reminds me nothing so much as the princess and the frog because that fairy tale is the same story it's it's the princess is tossing her golden ball up in the air and she drops it into the well she's really shown as as being childish right now which of course reinforces her difference from her husband but once she drops the ring she knows it's bad she knows it's bad because of course her husband is gonna find out and peleus advises her to tell her husband the truth is, you know, that's that's the right thing to do. But Melisande is 
not so sure about that. And we set up another dichotomy here. Peleas is, is advising the truth. She's advising a lie. And ultimately, they will be united by the fact that Melisande choose, will choose to lie to Golo in the next scene. And later, Peleas will back up that lie connecting those two characters and leaving Golo off to the side. All right, we're going to listen to a little bit of the interaction between Peleas and Melisande in this scene we just described. C'est au bord d'une fontaine aussi qu'il vous a trouvé Il vous a-t-il dit Rien, je ne me rappelle plus Était-il tout près de vous Il voulait m'embrasser Et vous ne vouliez pas Pourquoi ne vouliez-vous pas Je vais vous passer quelque chose avant de l'eau Prenez garde, prenez garde Vous allez tomber Avec quoi jouez-vous Avec la nauvée m'a donné Ne jouerez pas ainsi That was Peleas et Melisande in Claude Debussy's opera of that name. And they are getting close to plotting together, despite the fact that Peleas says, just tell the truth about how you lost your wedding ring. It'll be okay. <laughs> you know, it's it's always the cover-up, right? It's not the <laughs> lie, it's the cover-up. <laughs> I, You know, I'm not sure that's entirely true, but... <laughs> But when we begin our next scene, we are in the castle and Golo is not well. Yes. So we learn that at the exact second that Melisande lost her ring, the second it fell into the water, Golo, somewhere else on the estate, he was riding his horse and his horse reared and threw him. So he is recovering from this injury. 
I, I think the symbol is is pretty easy to interpret here. <laughs> but yes. but her yes. unfaithfulness, her carelessness, her admitting that she doesn't want to kiss her husband, doesn't want to be near him, that betrayal had a physical impact on him. So we see that we're in a world that even your emotions can impact actions. So she she comes to the to his bedside as he is recovering and she is weeping just like the last time that they were in the same room together. She is, she is weeping, and although Gulo is the one who is injured, Melisande is really the one who needs comforting in this scene, and Gulo is trying to figure out, why are you crying? What's going on? You know, why why are you so upset? And she offers him some water, by the way. Did you notice that? Oh, she yes, offers water. <laughs> and... And he rejects it. To continue our theme. Yes, yeah, she, she tries to give him some water and he rejects and he says, I, I don't need it. And I, he says something like, my body is made of iron and blood, setting himself further and further apart from her. If she's water, he's iron. So Melisande says, yes, I'm, I'm sick here. I am not happy here. And he can't, he doesn't know why she's not happy because she is being mysterious Melisande. She can't really tell him she just is unhappy she says one of the things she says is that you know the castle is so gloomy and she says i I never see the sky i never see the sun and he he says yeah yeah i get it my ancestral castle is a little gloomy it's falling apart this is a gothic castle (laughs) it's about the atmosphere but he he says she's being childish really because he says you know it's summer it's going to be summer soon it's going to be beautiful this is all about your perspective, really. And he's right. She can't see the sky, the sun, because she's unhappy. And right. he doesn't understand that. And so once again, we see them start to be separated even further, that he he is the one who can see light and she can't. She really is in darkness, in water. I think it's important to also say he's connected to gold because he's connected to the the ring that she was wearing, this gold antique heirloom, which is in turn connected to the crown of gold that she lost in the water at the beginning. These are both symbols of royalty. They're also symbols of her marriage, symbols of her status as a, as a royal person. And they're things that she has tossed into the water and cast away from herself. So yeah, things are things aren't going so well, and he, of course, as a husband might, notices that her ring is missing. Well, but reflecting on Golo as this reasonable guy, he tries to figure out. Well, it, it just can't be that you're vaguely unhappy, and he lists everyone in the family. Did this person upset you? Did this mm-hmm. person upset you? Did this person upset you? And then he lands on Peleas. Like, well, he's not been very nice to you. He hasn't been talking to you much. And Melisande jumps to Peleas' defense. Yeah, they're already tied together. So she's right. She's not going to agree that, that he's the one. You know, she's oh, yeah, he's strange and distant, but not to me. Which is perhaps Gulo's first hint that perhaps he should be paying attention to, to what the two of them are doing together. But but he continues to, to tell her, basically, grow up. Yeah. Right? You're a child. He refers to her as a child a few times. But on the grown-up realm, he's pretty upset about that lost ring. Yeah, he's very upset. And she makes up this whole story about how she lost it because she doesn't want to admit that she lost it by the fountain with Peleas. Perhaps she's picked up on attention when she mentions Peleas's name. 
And she picks up this story, says, oh, I was playing with your son by the sea. We were looking for shells. I lost it in the sea. And he says, well, you got to go look for it. She's like, well, it's the middle of the night. I don't want to go to the sea. And he says, I don't care. It's my family heirloom. He's mad. And he really, he kind of wants, I think, wants to punish her. And so he sends her out into the night. She says she's afraid. And he says, all right, fine. If you're afraid, take Peleos with you and he will protect you. And so Peleos is going to Such accompany- a good idea. <laughs> right, I know. It's like, aren't you trying to keep them apart? Like, <laughs> But um, he says, oh, yeah, take Peleos. So Peleos and Melisande are going to go look for the ring. But she mm. ends this conversation with her husband by declaring once again how unhappy she is. So things are, things are dark. <laughs> Poor She's Melisande. unhappy and she cries again. Yeah. She spent more time crying than than anything else in this in this opera so far, I think. <laughs> so we'll listen to a little bit of this exchange between Golo and Melisande as as he's upset and she's just trying to deal with it and ultimately dissolves into tears. Listening to Peleas et Melisande on Opera for Everyone, and we are coming up to the end of Act Two of this five-act opera. And we've just had a tense scene between husband and wife, Golo and Melisande. Melisande has lost her wedding ring, and Golo says, "I don't care how late it is, and I don't care how dark that cave is. You go find it." She's scared, so he suggests she take his brother. Peleas, good choice, Golo. Right, don't want have some have some time with a man I'm kind of suspicious that you're in love with. <laughs> right, but we've already seen him refer to her multiple times as a child. Yeah, you would Sorry. send your brother with a child. Yes, exactly. Right, he's always been older than her. I mean, from the very beginning, she remarks one of the first things she remarks on is how he's got gray hair. But that is becoming even more so. He is morphing more into, well, honestly, morphing more into his own father, too. We know his father has been ill and in bed this whole time. 
a character that's always off screen. And now Goulot is the one who's ill and in bed. So he is moving farther into that role. And she, as a consequence, is is treated more like a child. I'm sure that makes her happy. (laughs) She keeps talking about her being unhappy, but it's never with a lot of great emotion, interestingly. It's just a comment that she drops. In fact, she ends that piece that we just listened to by saying, I am not happy. I am not happy. And more crying. It's true. Almost as if she's fated to be unhappy. Almost as if there's nothing she feels like she can do about it. When we meet her, we know that she has been unhappy wherever she was before and has left that. And now she's in a a situation where it almost feels like she's repeating a cycle and doesn't seem to do that much to try to fight against that cycle. She just knows that she's caught in it. Yeah, so uh, she does, in fact, take the advice. And Peleas, in the next scene, is with Melisande in this cave, searching for the wedding ring they know they won't find. Yes, he, he says to her, well, we have to go to the cave, even though you didn't lose your ring there. We have to go so that when you go back to your husband, you can describe it to him, the place that you lost it. And so we have to see it. And in that way, he really places himself in this secret with Melisande. We talked about that a little before, that it becomes even more stark that Golo is on one side of the secret and then the two, not lovers, but but would-be lovers, are on the other side of that secret. He's chosen his his loyalty, which is is interesting because from the beginning, we know he struggled between family loyalty and loyalty to friends and always wants to choose friends. He wanted to go see Marcellus before he died, but he couldn't because his own father was ill. And here we see once again him struggling to choose his own brother or choose this girl that he's interested in. And then there's a curious development while they're in the cave. She starts, startles, because she sees three people sleeping in the cave. Yeah, she sees these paupers, these these poor people who are taking shelter in the cave and is frightened by them. And and her fear of them is a little bit odd and mysterious, but I think it's more interesting that Debussy decides to include this moment in the text because it's this little hint that things are not well in this kingdom. If you've got paupers that are, are sleeping in a cave near the castle in order to stay alive, you know that there's got to be something going on with the <laughs> governorship of this, this country. There's poverty, there's want. And it's another little hint that, that not everything is, is okay in this kingdom. Right. And, and Peleas even says there's a famine in this country. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's true. It reminds me a little bit of well, of a Poe story, who Debussy loved, where you have the rich people inside the castle and there's famine and, and disease on the outside. This is the Mask of the Red Death. The, the rich people are trying to amuse themselves, trying to have their love stories and stuff like that. While on the outside, it's a completely different world. And this is a moment where Melisande sees the outside for the first time. She sees right. what, what people are really like. And she doesn't right. like it. It scares her. Well, it reminds me of the story of the Buddha before he becomes the Buddha, when he leaves the palace and first sees poverty. Um, but it doesn't really. We all go have that to direction. leave our palaces at some point. <laughs> yes, it's yes, good for us. Well, as soon as they see these three people sleeping, they both decide to depart, and that's pretty much the end of the scene. Except Peleas 
offers to walk with her, and she poignantly says, no, I prefer to walk alone. You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host Kathleen Vandewell. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And when you go, you can find a rich trove of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm Pat Wright. And I'm Kathleen Vandewell. Kathleen, what an opera this is. Peleas et Melisande by Claude Debussy. It is a beautiful and strange opera. I love it. (laughs) 
the more I listen to different versions of it and see different versions of it, the more I'm falling in love with this opera because it's just so, it gets you emotionally. At Debussy, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, his new conception of what an opera should be. I'm, I'm inclined to agree with him. All of his thoughts about how opera should change. He certainly created an opera that, that makes me think that he was right. <laughs> well, I like the old ones as well. So it's just, it's all glorious. However, before we continue any further, I would like to say thank you to the artists who made possible this CD we are listening to. This is a recording that was made in 1978 with the Berliner Philharmoniker under the direction of Herbert von Karajan and the choir of the Deutschen Oper Berlin. We have in the role of Peleas, Richard Stilwell, Melesande is Federica von Stad. Golo is José van Damme, Arkel, Ruggero Raimondi, and Golo's young son, Inold, is sung by Christine Barbeau, which leads me to mention we haven't heard from Inold yet, but when Debussy wrote this part, he didn't write it as a trouser role when you have women playing male roles. He wrote it for a boy soprano, and... That's not always practical for an opera company to find a, a boy soprano who can take on the demands of this role. It's, it's not an easy, it's not just a quickie. <laughs> it's, it's a real role, and so oftentimes it is played by a woman. However, when opera companies do have access to uh, a boy who can take on this role, I think a lot of them will try to honor Debussy's original intention. Even during Debussy's lifetime, they had to sometimes mm. use a soprano, a female soprano, in the role. But we'll meet Enold. If you're a boy soprano out there, find yourself a, a Peleus and Melisande. They're looking for you. <laughs> well, it's interesting because one of the other operas that uses a young boy as a child of one of the main characters is Boris Gudunov, one of the operas that we're going to get to, you and I, one of these days. <laughs> we're going to. But I bring that up not just because of the connection with the the role of a boy playing a boy, but also because Mussorgsky was one of the composers that Debussy became familiar with when he spent some time in Russia. Why was he in Russia, you ask? <laughs> Why was he in Russia, Pat? Well, Nadezhda von Meck, whose name may or may not sound familiar to you, had embraced him in terms of bringing him into the family not hiring him simply as a music teacher for her children, although that was part of it. Also someone she could play duets with. She was a great patroness of the arts, but she, she's Russian herself, very wealthy. Spent time in France, too, as, as one did as a wealthy Russian at that time. But if you've heard her name before, you've probably heard it in connection with Tchaikovsky. Because when Tchaikovsky was at the end of the line being able to be successful as a composer, it's Nadezhda von Meck who comes to his rescue. They have this curious long-distance relationship, but she does provide financial support. She doesn't ever want to meet him in person because she wants to remain apart so she can idealize him. Not so with Debussy. He was brought into the family. He, he was just 18 when he first started hanging out with Nadezhda von Meck. But that relationship gave him trips to the south of France, trips to Florence, trips to Russia. He became familiar with the Russian opera there. And 
Another connection with Boris Godunov is that it's also one of those operas like Peleos and Melisande, where the composer crafts the libretto from an existing piece of literature. In the case of Boris Godunov, it's a story by the famous Russian author Pushkin, but in the case of Debussy, he picks a story, a play that really appeals to him that we've already spoken about, this play by Metterling. Well, Pat, is it time for us to maybe do the the opera helmet quiz? I I would love to do it. (laughs) Oh, please do. Bring us up to speed. (laughs) I'll catch everyone up. Here's what you've missed if you've missed the first half. So we first meet Melisande. She is a mysterious woman in the woods. She's crying by a fountain and a handsome prince comes upon her as happens. His name Ah. is Golo. And he is enchanted by her, by her beauty and her youth and how mysterious she is. He marries her and takes her home to his castle where she meets his brother, his younger brother, Peleas. And as time goes on, Melisande is increasingly unhappy. It's never really clear to anyone why she's so unhappy, but she is. She's dissatisfied with the marriage, with with the kingdom that she's in, and she increasingly spends more and more time with Peleas, who is more romantic, younger, and <laughs> the the big climax, I suppose, of the first half is she loses her wedding ring. She's being careless, mm. she's playing with it by a fountain with Peleas, and she's tossing it in the air, and it falls into the water, and she loses it. And so when we were, were last with Peleas and Melisande, they were sneaking around this cave uh, where she had said that she lost the ring when Golo noticed it was missing because she didn't want to say what had actually happened. And they were really entering into this confederacy, Peleas and Melisande, this lie that's going to draw them closer together and, and move her farther away from her husband. So all is not well in the kingdom of Alemande. Um, and we're about to... By the way, Alemande, do you oh, know yes. that that's, that's a bit of a, a, a conjunction of a, possibly a little bit of German, meaning all or everything, and monde, world, world in French. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, it's not a real place. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's standing for, you know, just it's as these fantasy. people are humans... Of any sort, this is a kingdom or a, a place, a castle of any. Yeah, it's, it's Anywheresville. <laughs> it is Anywheresville, and that's part of why in various productions it, it can look so different. Not just because it's challenging material, but because it doesn't require to be set in any particular time or place. It's true, and I think that's probably related to Debussy's belief that his his lovers could be any lovers. These sorts of stories, the, the dissatisfaction with a marriage, jealousy, they can happen to anybody in any place at any time. And in this story, while we're, we're telling the story about these specific characters, it really could be set anywhere with anyone. Right. Well, like any great work of art, it, it gets at human truths. So we are about to, well, we're about to kick things up a notch, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In Act 3, we enter into a scene that is even more obviously based on fairy tale. We've seen these fairy tale elements throughout the opera, but Act 3 is full fairy tale and specifically one fairy tale in particular and that is Rapunzel at least part of it (laughs) (laughs) what is Rapunzel like about the first scene of act three 
Melisande is, is on this balcony. She's combing her hair to get away from the heat. And um, she's singing this beautiful song. And just like a maiden does, you know, when you've got a balcony and you've got hair and you're singing, well, you're going to attract a nice young gentleman who's going to come hear you sing and fall in love with you, of course. <laughs> so Peleus hears her singing and... He is totally smitten, and yes. he says, I want you to lean out of, of the window, and, and, and I want to admire you. He starts to call her beautiful, and we've seen there's maybe some sexual tension between these characters before, but this is the first time that it's really overt. He's being very flirtatious. It's full-on flirt for It's full-on flirting. Yeah, he wants to kiss her hand. He wants her to touch him, and... He also says, well, you should you should let me kiss your hand because I'm leaving tomorrow on my journey. This journey I've been talking about since the beginning. Oh, that again. He's <laughs> leaving again. <laughs> oh, poor Pelias. He's a little bit Hamlet-like. He's indecisive. So he says he's leaving and she says, well, all right, you can touch my hand, but only if you say that you won't leave. So that plan was abandoned pretty quickly. <laughs> Um, as we didn't see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, as she's leaning out the window and brushing her hair, her hair falls down in all of its glory and, and sort of drapes itself all over Peleos because it's extraordinarily long. And this is just, I mean, we're full on, as I said, full on fairy tale here. Yes. And it's ah, beautiful and symbolic and sexual and strange. And, and he's loving it. He every is so second into it. it. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, we're gonna listen to this scene, and then this kind of flirtatious behavior probably can't go unchecked. So we'll listen to the scene and then and then talk about the consequences. <laughs> listening to Opera for Everyone. This is Peleas and Melisande by Debussy. And we are in a beautiful fairy tale. There is golden hair that is falling from a tower. There's a knight and his lady, and everything is beautiful and romantic, and things are about to get a little weird. 
Well, yeah, because he makes use of that hair. He doesn't want to let her go. So Pelias is luxuriating in this hair, and he gets the idea that he wants to playfully tie her hair to a tree that's nearby. So he does, and Milisan is a little bit freaked out by this. All these doves are scared by this. He he scares all these birds as he does right. this. And, and there are these doves, which is the bird sacred to Aphrodite, goddess of love. So we've got more symbols here. Mm-hmm. But Melisande starts to be frightened. She thinks the birds are going to lose their way because it's it's very dark at this point. Um, it's, yeah. it's close to midnight. And this cute flirtatious scene takes a bit of a strange turn. Once he ties her to the tree, he says, you're my prisoner. Yeah. And you're my prisoner for the night, he says, all night. And all of a sudden, it starts to be very dark. And then the husband arrives. I'm uncomfortable (laughs) with this scene, I would just like to say. (laughs) Not, not, yeah, not your cup of tea. Yes, I would say, you know, if you're you're a young gentleman and you're trying to to look for dating advice on the Opera for Everyone podcast... (laughs) Um, don't do this. Don't do this. This is not good behavior. No. Please get consent before you tie someone's hair to a tree. So Golo, the husband, is approaching and Melisan hears him and and says, well, we got to stop what we're doing. This is weird. Um, And Golo comes upon him and he says, what are you guys doing? And he is, he really emphasizes the childishness of their behavior. He says, well, you're acting like children. And we know that he has said this before to Melisande, that she's acting like a child. But now he sees them behaving in this flirtatious way. And he infantilizes them so that he doesn't really have to think about them as potential lovers. He thinks about them as children playing a game. So he scolds them for doing this. And then he, he takes Peleos and he marches him away. <laughs> Well, he's protecting himself in a way by saying they're just kids. But you know when he marches his brother off that the seed of doubt is firmly rooted.
faites vous ici Ce que je fais ici Je... Vous êtes des enfants Élisante, ne te penche pas ainsi à la fenêtre Tu vas tomber Vous ne savez pas qu'il est tard Il est près de Ne jouez pas ainsi dans l'obscurité, vous êtes des enfants Quels enfants Quels enfants There's tension in the kingdom, as Golo finds his wife flirting with his brother, and it looked pretty serious because they were seeming quite intimate, particularly with her hair all tied up around him, mm, uncomfortable. Yes. And the next scene, we have Golo and Peleas in the underground passages of the castle. That can't be a pleasant place. No, apparently it smells like death down there. Literally, the water has the scent of death. This scene reminds me of a scene from The Godfather. <laughs> It's like, oh, no. it's sort of like, uh, like Golo is taking Peleus down there saying, you know, here's a, here's a giant chasm would be a shame if someone fell into it. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> it's very, yes. it's threatening, but in this, like, we're not gonna, we're, we're not gonna say it out loud, but you're gonna know that I'm threatening you. He even offers, he says, I'll hold you, Peleus, I'll hold you if you want to look lean over into the chasm and, and see how far down it goes. He goes, I'll hold you while you lean over if you want. Yeah, he wants to brush it off. Oh, they're children. Oh, they're children. But he also is giving a very clear warning to his younger half-brother. Mm -hmm. You need to watch it because bad stuff could happen if you keep on this route. Yes, and, and Pelias is, he's freaked out. He gets the message and he begs Golo to let him leave. I would say that the most important thing about this is, once again, to talk about the symbols and the play. There's something mm. clearly wrong with this kingdom, and that's symbolized, as we mentioned before, by the, the peasants who are taking shelter. But also here, we see that the, the literal castle itself is built on a rotten foundation. It's built on these chasms full of water that smell like death. It's rotting, it's sinking. Something is, is rotten in the state of Denmark. <laughs> yes. And, yes. and that, of course, is, is a metaphor for the larger kingdom. There is something wrong with the foundations here. Right, partially explaining why Melisande is always saying she's unhappy. In the next scene, we still have Golo and Peleas. And Peleas has emerged from this stinking underground area, and he's finally breathing in the fresh air, but Goulot is not done with his warnings. Once again, referring to them as children, he says, you know what, you've been playing these, these children's games with my wife, but this has to stop. And you need to leave her alone, but also don't make a scene. Just leave her alone. She's delicate right now. And then, of course, he drops the bomb that she's in a delicate she's condition. She's in a delicate way. <laughs> Melisande <laughs> is pregnant, which yeah. it's so striking to hear him talk about her as a child and then practically in the next line, talk about her as expecting a child. Yes, um, she will become a mother soon. 
if you've been paying attention, I think you would agree with me that Melisande is perhaps not ready to be a mother. She is still very, <laughs> very childlike herself. Yes. And part of that is the way that Golo treats her and the contrast between the two of them. But I think it's very clear that, that she is indeed delicate. She is unhappy. And their marriage is, is not a happy one. And you get the sense that Peleas, once again, has gotten the message. Yes, he has. At least at this moment. Yes, and the scene ends with (laughs) with him basically agreeing that he is going to avoid Melisande for the future. Kathleen, would this be a good time for you to tell us a little bit about the symbolist movement? So so we've mentioned this several times throughout our our conversation here. The play that this is based on by Metterlink is one of the plays of of a literature and art music movement called the symbolist movement. It's pretty much what it sounds like. They are privileging symbols and symbolism over realism, basically. And it is a movement that's responding to the realist movement, especially in Britain in the mid 19th century. So it's big excess. Let's use metaphor instead of realism. I always think about how I was taught about metaphor. I learned about it through the book Jane Eyre, which is way, way earlier than the symbolist movement, but includes a lot of really powerful metaphors. And the climax of that novel, you have Jane and Mr. Rochester kiss for the first time, and he proposes, and they're sitting under a a giant tree, and all of a sudden there's a storm, and a bolt of lightning strikes the tree and Uh splits it in half. <laughs> subtle, very subtle. Yeah, subtle too is not the strong suit here, um, or of symbolism at all. So of course that that prefigures what you're meant to see is that something is something is wrong with this relationship. There's going to be some great chasm, and um, they're going to be split apart. And of course that's literally what happens. So so that's how I learned how to recognize metaphor and symbol, and that's very much what what you see in this play too: light and dark and water and gold and iron versus the natural world, like we said, the the rotten foundations of the castle. Symbolism is fun. <laughs> you know, realism can be great fiction, but the pre-Raphaelites and the, the Gothic and all of that, that I find that's that's really where I live. I love stuff like that. So that's the movement this is coming out of. Well, the power of metaphor 
is great. I'd like to mention, besides our playwright, Maurice Metterlink, who provides the words for the libretto for this opera, crafted then by Debussy, we also have some writers who are part of this movement that have a connection to Debussy. Stéphane Mallarmé, for example, I understand his salon was was absolutely central <laughs> to the the symbolist movement. Yes, the, the poets of the movement quite literally write the manifesto. There is a symbolist manifesto trying to define what this means, what this movement is. So you get a couple poets like Paul Verlaine, Mallarmé, Rimbaud. So those are sort of the main voices of the movement. Well, Mallarmé wrote the poem L'après-midi d'une faune in 1876, about two, almost two decades later in 1894. That's when Debussy writes one of his most well-known works to this day, Prelude à l'après-midi du faune. Well, it was a poem. It didn't need a prelude, but, but he found this poem so inspirational, so meaningful to him that that becomes the impetus for him writing this beloved work. Also, Probably the most famous single song from Debussy is Claire de Lune, which is a, a piece, a movement from his suite Bergamasque. And Claire de Lune was a poem that was written by Paul Verlaine. So <laughs> what a small world. <laughs> yeah, it's all intertwined, and but they find inspiration from one another. They they find compatriots of like mind. And that's why when Debussy discovered this play that was written by Mitterlink, it clicked for him. He knew that he had found the right work. And all of these half-started operas that he was working on, because opera was still seen as such a, a capstone for a composer, it was the Mitterlink story that really worked for him because they were simpatico. And this music has really seeped into our consciousness so much. You you mentioned the prelude. One of the, the funniest connections I have with the prelude is that is the hold music, um, if you call the company I work at. Oh, no. <laughs> and every time that I hear it, I'm like, oh, poor Debussy. He would be so sad. I, I don't know if this tops that, but Claire de Lune is what my rice cooker plays when oh, the rice no. is done. Yeah. Oh, these poor men, they wrote their manifesto and now it's the rice cooker music. Well. (laughs) On that, Kathleen, I think we've covered the symbolist movement from the profound to the banal pedestrian. Pedestrian, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Transition. (laughs) All right. And now we can't laugh anymore because we have a very awkward scene between a father and a son. Inold, who we mentioned earlier, may have appeared, depending on the production that you watch. You may have seen this boy in the background watching the grown-ups in his world. But right here, we're going to get a scene where Inol and his father, Golo, have an exchange. And it is as strange as some of the, as the scenes between the other characters to me. This is the most cringeworthy one as you're watching mm-hmm. it, because you, you really feel for this, this boy being interrogated by his father. It's true. And you, you feel the desperation Golo has too, that he, he can't really turn to anybody else. He can't talk to his wife. That relationship is in a really strange place. And when he's tried to talk to Peleas, he knows that if he is straightforward about his suspicions, that will probably ruin his relationship with his brother. So he has no one really to turn to except for his child. And he starts interrogating Enold about their relationship. 
with the idea, I think, that children kind of see everything, you know, that, that you know, right. may not understand, but he's always sort of around. And mm-hmm. so uh, Golo asks, have you ever seen them together? Have you ever seen them kiss? And of course, you know, does a child doesn't really understand and gives, I mean, if you've ever asked a, a young child to tell you a story or tell you about an event that happened, <laughs> you yes. get it in this really impressionistic, vague, strange, and incredibly interesting way we get a lot of symbols uh, in the way that, you know, talks. He says, you know, I've, I've seen them crying together in the dark and I've seen them kissing in the rain. And it's poetic and, and, and we get this, this very poetic, interesting, impressionistic version of their love story through his eyes. But Goulot can't get out of him. Well, what kind of a kiss was it? Was mm-hmm. it a peck on the cheek, like a brother might give to his sister-in-law? Or was it a passionate romantic? He can't get those answers mm-hmm. because Enol just has no way to process that information. It doesn't, mm-hmm. he wouldn't conceive of it that way. Well, yes, of course, Uncle Peleas right. loves mommy. And as the scene goes on, Golo becomes more and more desperate and more and more insistent. And Enol gets more and more uncomfortable. And where he starts lovingly referring to his father in this cute little way where he says, petit père, little father, little father. It's almost ingratiating, and please let me out of this, daddy. Petit père, petit père. He's trying to say, I, I want to give you what you want, but I don't know what you want. This is the first time we really see Golo starting to lose it a little bit, I think. He's starting to slip away from the controlled, mature king that we've seen before. And... Even when he was being a bit theatrical and dramatic under the castle, you know, above the chasm, he was very much in control of that scene. Whereas this, he seems very desperate and and he yes. seems to be losing control. Oui, 
Ricardo, Ricardo, ignored. Gita et Boucher. Parle plus bas. Que font-ils? Ils ne font rien, petit père. Sont-ils prêts l'un à l'autre? Et ce qu'ils parlent? Non, petit père, ils ne parlent pas. Et que font-ils? finished Act 3 of Peleas and Melisande by Claude Debussy, and we're ready for Act 4. Act 4 starts out in a room in the castle. So in the in the room, uh, Peleas and Melisande are talking. Peleas has, has spoken with his father, who seems to be getting better. And oh, good. Yes, <laughs> finally somebody is recovering yes. in this opera. <laughs> nice. Um, but the father, once again, although we never see him appear in the opera he has given Pelias some advice he says I you know I look at you and you look like somebody who has a look of death about you is somebody who won't live long and you should go travel while you have the chance which to me is a little bit convenient because Pelias has been trying to travel the entire time so finally he gets somebody who's like yeah you should definitely go yeah, but a little ominous for your father to say you have the look of death about you. Yes, I would be a little it would be a little strange if my dad said that to me. But Pelias has decided this he's taking this as, as truth and, and decides he's gonna leave and he's telling Melisande, there's something I have to say to you before I leave. And he wants her to meet him at the fountain where they played together before, the Fountain of the Blind. And this is very upsetting to her, as you would imagine. And so she she's very sad, but um, but Peleus has to leave because Arkel, the, the king, is approaching. And once again, Melisande, right before they part, says, I don't understand what you're saying anymore. Mm-hmm. This, again, this lack the... of comprehension amongst people, which again, I feel like is part of the big message that Debussy yeah. wants to get across with this show, that people live their own worlds and don't always understand each other. <laughs> right, of course. You have Goulot who doesn't understand the nature of the relationship between Peleus and Melisande. He can't get the information and she can't communicate why she's unhappy. And it's just, yeah, it's about people unable to, to talk to each other. And then we have this very interesting and at times uncomfortable scene between Arkel, the old king, and his granddaughter-in-law, Melisande. Mm-hmm. He's quite happy to know that Peleas' father is going to live, but he's focusing on the, this atmosphere of death in the castle and his own mortality, his own age. It's true. He sees that, that look hanging about her just the same way that the father has, has seen this look hanging around Peleas. Yeah, there's a real feeling of of impending doom here. A lot of foreshadowing that that something is going to happen, 
And and yet he is you're right, it's a strange scene. It's kind of uncomfortable, like a lot of the scenes in this yes. opera. <laughs> it always feels like the relations between people are just slightly off. You know, mm-hmm. it's like Golo and his son. It's like sometimes it's sweet, and then there's this little like it's it's almost like milk that's just about to go sour, you know? <laughs> Like, you can just taste the edge of it. Um, And it's the same in in these interactions. And this is the same in this scene. So Arkel is being kind to Melisande. He he seems to care about her. Yes. But there's also this strange way in which he he wants to to kiss her. He says, you know, if I put my cheeks against your lips or your cheek or your forehead, then I will feel sort of like revivified because he feels his own death and own mortality approaching. He must be a very old man because we know that his grandson already has gray hair. So it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of an odd scene where he's trying to kiss her and, and almost suck the life out of her. Right. He says old men sometimes need to touch with their lips the forehead of a woman or the cheek of a child. And there's a lot of room for a director to take this scene the way they want to interpret it. I've seen very simple scenes where it's just him sharing this with and I've also seen where at the end of this scene he just plants one full kiss right on the mouth with her and it looks more like the way a boyfriend would kiss a girlfriend than a grandfather should kiss a granddaughter well yeah there's that that uncomfortable note (laughs) exactly so this after this exchange, uh, Golo comes in and tells everyone that Pelias is indeed leaving. But there's a there's something s- strange about his demeanor, and and Melisande notices that he actually has blood on his face, and she's very concerned, as you would imagine, and tries to wipe the blood away. Don't touch uh, me, he says. And he, right, he repeats this line that, that we hear when she first encounters him. She says, don't touch me. That's her first line in the whole opera. And now he's the one saying, don't touch me. And this begins a scene that really spirals out of his control. We see Golo is completely consumed with jealousy, with his lack of knowledge. He's not, he still doesn't understand the nature of their relationship. And... The fact that she is now afraid of him after he yells at her, she starts, she flinches when he he grabs his sword, afraid that he's going to hurt her. Right. And that only serves to make him more angry. But of course, Arkel is watching this, the grandfather, who might be a bit of a perv, maybe, but still, you know, <laughs> doesn't want Kolo to hurt Melisande, and he says, no, she's innocent. Why, you know, tries to stop Golo from hurting her by saying she is an innocent. Yes. But that really spirals it even further as Golo reflects upon what does it mean to be an innocent and is she indeed an innocent? Exactly. And he moves from talking about her to talking about them. And we interpret that as his brother and his wife. Mm -hmm. They are purer than the eyes of a lamb. They would teach God lessons in innocence, great innocence. I mean, I'm hearing sarcasm. I think it is sarcasm, and and of course, but but it's also reflects back on who he heard this from. He heard this the the story of their affair from a child, an innocent child, who Mm. looked upon it with innocent eyes and described it in an innocent way. You know, oh yeah, of course they just like to hug and cry sometimes together, and they kiss in the rain, and 
it goes back to that idea of like, he still can't understand what kind of kiss is it? Are they consummating this? And so that, his lack of knowledge and the fact that he's seen this affair really only through the eyes of his 10 year old child is just driving him insane. And he kind of freaks out with her about her eyes. He says, I've seen what your eyes can do. And we assume he's talking about her flirtation with his brother. And he screams at her, close them, close them, or I will close them for a long time. That's a threat. Yeah. And he he ends up grabbing her. He and striking her as she as she tries to get away. Arkel is asking, asking, you know, is he drunk? What's going on with him? And Melisande tells Arkel after Golo leaves that he's not drunk, but he doesn't love me anymore. Yeah, and I'd also like to mention that when he grabs Melisande. The way he grabs her is by the hair. Yes. And says, oh, this hair is finally useful. And it's not a pretty scene. It's, again, a very Mm -hmm. uncomfortable scene to see this man out of control, strike his wife, grab his wife, and and be violent with her. Mm -hmm. But he does leave, and she's left to speak to the grandfather. Yes, and and Arkel ends the scene by reflecting on that God really is the only one that can have pity on, on men, that he recognizes his son is really beyond their help, that really it's only God's pity and forgiveness that can, can save them now. In the next scene of this act, we have one character only on stage, and that's Inold, the child of Goulot. And it's a very curious scene. We have these little scenes that are interspersed where they seem to always involve you know so we have the the great love scene and her um on the balcony and then we have this this sort of we go away from the lovers and we have this scene between father and son and then we have this scene of great violence between the husband and wife and then we we cut away from that and i think to Enol, and i think it's a way of allowing the audience to take a breath a little bit after this big scene but it is strange because it's just this, Enol is playing with a golden ball and playing uh, by the seashore and has lost the ball. He's trying to, to move these rocks. He's trying to get the ball. We have this, this juxtaposition once again of the, the color gold and golden objects. So we first have the golden crown that Melisande has lost in the water right. at the very beginning. Then we have the, the golden ring that she loses in the fountain. And then we have the golden ball that Enol has lost. So in the rule of threes, that kind of completes our trilogy of objects. It's a childish object. We've, we've associated Melisande with, with being childlike. But beyond that, it's, it's just a, an odd little scene. He, he also sees a shepherd go by as he's looking for this ball. And the sheep are being led to slaughter is what, the, what we learn referencing back to the fact that Melisande has been just compared to a lamb in the previous scene, there's some significant foreshadowing here of, of what is coming next. Right, and they're, they're silent, the sheep, and, and you hear the shepherd's voice off stage, and he says, yes, they're silent because this is not the way to the stable. This is not the way to comfort and security and what they know. It's, again, it's very creepy, but, but also as you say, a little bit of a respite because it is just a child's beautiful voice singing this this scene. Mm-hmm. And then the final scene of Act Four of Peleas and Melisande by Claude Debussy has 
a very potent interaction between our two title characters. Yes, Peleus is waiting for Melisam by this fountain. And in this scene, he he finally admits to her and to himself that he is in love with her. He is going to be leaving and he's reflecting upon the fact that he has to tell her. He knows he finally has to tell her that he loves her. And when she finally does appear, she's running, she's out of breath. The last time we saw her, she was being abused. So there, there's an urgency and a tragedy that she's bringing with her to this love scene. And she says, you know, I'm not afraid to be seen. She's trying to be somewhat bold. But Pelias sees that she's this sort of broken, sad person. And eventually, though, does confess his love for her. You know, though, it's interesting because I would have sworn watching this before I read the libretto that he said that he loved her. But in the libretto, he doesn't say it. He almost says it. He says, because, and then he kisses her. (laughs) And as soon as her lips are available, she says, I love you too. Yeah. So fascinating. That is interesting. It's one of those things that we don't actually hear, even though we hear it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he draws it out of her. You know, she's the one that speaks. And they have a moment. They have a beautiful moment. Yeah, a few moments, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But they have this, this song and they're really having this frozen moment in time where they get to enjoy the fact that they love each other and they've confessed that they love each other. But it's only a moment, really. And there's the specter of Golo haunting this love. We know that. And they they know it too. And once she's confessed her love to him and he's happy about it, very quickly he begins to question, you can't be telling me the truth. You, How can it be true? You can't really love me. And then she says one of these enigmatic things that she says. She says, no, no, I never lie. I only lie to your brother. <laughs> yes, well, that's what somebody would say, I suppose, if they were lying. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, the juxtaposition of truth versus lie is really important in this story. So I think it makes sense. I believe her when she says she doesn't lie to Peleos. Peleos is the one she doesn't lie to. That makes sense to me. Yes. But even as they have this moment, she says Golo is coming and she can hear him. As she's embracing her lover, she can hear that her husband is going to find her. And it, it... brings into relief that she's running when we first see her in the scene. Mm-hmm. It seems clear to me she's running from Golo. She knows he's going to find her. Mm. And Peleas responds to that by really giving it up. I mean, he says, we're going to die. We might as well embrace because he's going to find us and we're going to die here. There's a fatalism to this, which we've said this many times, Dave, you see, believed this about people that they, you couldn't fight against fate. You can only act under circumstances out of your control. And this is a perfect moment where Peleos chooses to kiss her, even as he knows he's, he's about to die. Well, again, one of these lines just jumps out at me where he says, all is lost, all is saved. Everything is (laughs) saved tonight. So he seems conscious of what's going on. All is lost. Mm -hmm. Yes. Cause Golo is going to show up and that's not going to be good, but but I think there's resolution right. for him in right. this action. Yes, you know, he's found her. They've confessed their love to each other. So that's, they've saved each other in that way, even as they're going to, to lose each other through death. So Golo does appear. 
He comes out of the shadows. And there's a while there where he's on stage and they dare not turn around to look at him. And they, mm-hmm. it, they're almost like caught animals, right? If they hold it's still. very tense, yes. And they're talking to each other about this, but, but you know it's going gonna, it's gonna right. to have to happen. They're going to have to. You know they can't there, there will be a confrontation. Mm-hmm. So Golo finally comes out of the shadows and draws his sword. And they embrace even more desperately. And, and then Golo kills Pelias. And Melisande flees. With Golo slowly pursuing her. for the final act of Debussy's Peleos et Melisande. And in this act, Melisande is not well. She's so unwell that there is a doctor present. But what the first thing we hear the doctor say is that, well, this little wound, this is not the kind of wound someone dies from. And yet we know, and everyone else seems to know, she's dying. Yeah, she, I mean, she's given birth. It's easy to forget, but in that whole, the whole time that this abuse has been going on, she was pregnant with Golo's child too. And she has given birth and it it appears she's given birth somewhat prematurely because they talk about the child who is a girl as being very small. She's given birth and she's lying in bed, but she's also been wounded by Golo. And it's unclear exactly which one of those things is killing her, but she is fading. Arkel is is there. He is trying to tend to her. He's being kind. And Golo is there and is... He's questioning whether or not he was justified in killing Peleas and in wounding Melisande. Part of the time he's feeling very guilty and part of the time he just wants to be let off the hook, mm-hmm. which Arkel is willing to do for him. Mm-hmm. And Melisande never lashes out. She is very passive at the end here. So we we know that Golo has been obsessed with knowing whether or not they're lovers this whole time. And he has seen them kiss now. He's seen them embrace. He literally killed Pelias while they were embracing. So he knows that there was something between them, but he's still obsessed with knowing the truth. Did they love each other? And did they consummate the relationship? And he sends... Arkel and the doctor out of the room so he can Mm -hmm. speak alone with his wife. And he doesn't get any better answers from her than he did from Enol. No. Well, I mean, and she is at 
a place where she's a little bit beyond reason. She she even asks where Peleos is, even though she knows he's dead. She was there when he was killed. She has entered this dreams dreamy state. It's it's unclear about her mental state really because she's on the brink of death. But she doesn't really know that she's dying either. And he keeps asking her <laughs> He keeps asking her for the truth and she just doesn't, she has no answers for him. She is a woman comprised of her own mysteries. I think she's as much a mystery to herself as she (laughs) is to others. Did you love him? Of course I loved Peleos. Everybody loves Peleos. Yeah. But it, but, but it's it's the same kind of answer that Enol gave. Does Peleos and Melisande kiss? Well, of course they kiss each other. You know, they're they're related. It's the same sort of answer that she's giving, and he is left with no answers. But Golo tries to pin her down and say, "Was it a guilty love? Was it a forbidden love?" And she does say, "We were not guilty." But why are you asking? It's just, she just right. I, her comprehension level is no more than when he. Golo questioned Enol. Right, and and we know too, though, that she has said she lies to him. And (laughs) so who knows, you know, whether she's deliberately dissembling or or just just doesn't understand what he's saying. But he finally says, I'm going to die like a blind man. He's going to die without ever knowing the truth. And that is, is driving him mad. And at a certain point here, enough's enough. And Arkel comes back in and says, you need to back off. You're going to kill her. Your intensity is not appropriate at this moment. Yeah. And, and Arkel brings in her child, um, asking, do you want to see your child? And she says, what child? She isn't even really conscious of that. When Arkel gives the little girl to her, holds the, the child up before her, she says, this girl, this, she's going to cry too. Basically saying, I feel sorry for her that she was ever born because she's born to be sad, just like her mother was. And there's this generational tragedy that appears to be beginning that Melisande is saying, you know, her daughter is going to be doomed to the same fate as her to to weep, to be a weeping woman. And I have to say this very end of the opera in the scene, particularly the role of Arkel and the way the scene develops with the music and the words has been one of my most powerful operatic experiences. I don't quite know how to say this, but I have been in the room when someone is dying before. And this felt so true to me because Arkel talks about her soul is needing quiet. He's saying, don't disturb her soul. And there's a a plane of existence that seems to be evoked by this scene. And I don't think I can watch this too often because it's so powerful, But, but there's truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ar- Arkel acts as the voice of wisdom, and he seems to understand death in a way that none of the other characters have. Golo says, you don't understand what a soul is, which is is a really powerful thing to say to somebody who's just killed two people. Mm-hmm. You know, he says, basically, if you, if you did understand what a soul was, you would never have killed these people who you loved. And that's just sort of the end. I mean, Golo says, you know, it's not my fault. Still says it's not my fault. I didn't understand. I never know what the truth is. And that's kind of it. Golo's just sort of left with with nothing and, and the in, inability to take real responsibility for his actions. And Arkel says to Golo, he says, well, what you have to do 
is you have to think about Melisande as you knew her, as this childish woman who was more like an older sister to this baby than a mother. Yes. And Melisande then dies. Right, and Arkell explains it as, I didn't hear anything. She goes away without saying anything. Yeah, she is, that is Melisande. She is mysterious to the end. And it's not, it's not what I think of as the quintessential operatic death scene Mm -hmm. where somebody's dying but then they sing these amazing arias Melisande we really do see her fading away Mm -hmm. and the auditory piece of that matches Debussy doesn't try to force anything with this opera the emotions feel natural and the characters feel like they react in a fairly natural way to their emotions rather than it being the opera as a format driving the way that they react. Right, and this is why we still hear from this opera. It's still played. And it sends shivers down my spine when we end with the great-grandfather holding the great-granddaughter, saying, oh, this poor little being, she must live now. It is the turn of this poor little girl. That might be all there is to say. (laughs) Well... I would like to say thank you, Kathleen, for helping us through this amazing opera. Uh, This was a wonderful one, and thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright. Joined by Kathleen Vanderwill. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe... Opera Opera is is for everyone. everyone.